Well, good morning, ECC. It's a pleasure to be with you this morning. My name is Will, and I'm one of the pastors, elders here at ECC. If you have a Bible, please turn with me to Psalm 22. Psalm 22. And if you're turning there, let me ask you this question. Have you ever had a time when you were suffering, waiting on God for something, and He seemed distant? When I was 15 years old, I went to Mexico to visit a friend, a former exchange student who had been living in the States, and I spent time with him in Saltillo, Mexico. I was there for like three weeks, and we traveled around Mexico. And what, what I realized, though, was I was 15 years old, he was 23 years old, and uh, he lived a different life, and he wasn't a believer. And it became very clear after some time with him that I needed to not be around him. And so I decided I would leave him in his city, and I went to go find some random missionaries that I had a loose connection with. Um, and I left. Uh, we were staying in a certain town, Guanajuato, and we were, I was going to Aguas Calientes, which was like three hours away on a bus. And I had to stay the night in Lyon, another city. And there I was, 15 years of age, alone in a city that I'd never been to, and uh, I was staying the night in some kind of not-so-great hotel, and it was really loud outside, and it seemed like there were just some really shady people around. And I prayed to God like I'd never prayed before. I cried out to Him in a way that uh, I'd never before. And that was the only thing that really comforted me was knowing the Lord was there uh, to keep me. That's just one small picture, I think, of what it means to feel like you're alone, to feel like you're waiting on God to answer. So with me, turn with me, if you would, to Psalm 22, where we're going to hear David in a much more difficult situation as he cries out to God. My God, my God, why, oh, sorry, Psalm 22, to the choir master, according to the doe of the dawn, a psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel, and you our fathers trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued, in you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me, they wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust in you in my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my, from, uh, my birth. And from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me. For trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water. And all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. 
O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but he has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall, wor- shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow down all who go down to the dust. Even the one who could not keep himself alive, posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. Father in heaven, I pray that this morning you would encourage us by your word. You would show us how we are to lament. I pray that we would see in it instruction for us. I pray that we'd see the hope that you give us in Psalm 22, even in the midst of terrible trials, tribulations, struggles, suffering. You are the God who never abandons your people. So help us this morning, we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Psalm 22 is a lament of the deepest kind, as we've just read. Here is an innocent man, David, talking about the kind of sorrow, suffering, of being forsaken, abandoned, left, by, left for dead by God himself. This is not a lament due to sickness or to sin. David is surrounded by a relentless band of enemies who mock both himself and God, and they want David dead. And if God doesn't show up, David doesn't have long to live. So friends, I think, let me ask you, have you been in any similar situation like this? Maybe you're thinking, Pastor, this is pretty extreme. I mean, I've never been surrounded by enemies. And yet, we have a very diverse congregation. People from many different nations, different lands, different places. And I'm willing to bet there are people here that have been through something like this, some kind of persecution. Maybe where your life is threatened for being a Christian. We know that happens around the world. There are many peoples, many Christians in different places, who, because they follow Jesus have their lives threatened on a daily basis. And what an encouragement to them and to us to hear this psalm, to have the psalm teach us how to cry out to the Lord. My aim this morning is that you would gain a rock-solid confidence from Psalm 22 that our God has never and can never forsake His people. Though it may feel like he is far off, he is the God who throughout history has preserved, protected, and empowered for praise those whom he loves. So no matter the persecution, the pain, the suffering, the trials, the threats, the attacks by Satan or the world, God has stayed close to you and will keep you. And this psalm teaches us how to pray our laments to God in the midst of these situations. 
So we're going to look at Psalm 22, broken up into three different scenes. Scene one is the turmoil, that's verses 1 through 10. Scene two is the, tor- ter- uh, sorry, the torment, verses 11 through 21. And scene three is the triumph, verses 22 through 31. Scene one is the turmoil, verses 1 through 10. Let's look at scene one. Verse one says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? For the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night I find no rest. What kind of trouble, turmoil, is David in, really? Well, it's the gravest kind, as we will see. He is surrounded by enemies who want to kill him. And in the place of this grave danger, in the midst of a situation where he is facing death, where is God? God seems silent. Nowhere in Psalm 22 do we record any response from God himself. There's no recording him even speaking. I want you to hear the intensity of David's plea. He twice appeals to his God and complains that he has been forsaken, abandoned, left. God is far from saving. David says that God is not close to him to act, to intercede, and he's not responding to David at all. I want to note, too, right now that this is an appropriate prayer to God. These are the prayers of a man in desperation. He's saying to God in a rhetorical fashion, I need you. Where is your help? Where is the salvation that you have promised your people to me? And this is what prayer is for. To bring to God these right good feelings of needing Him. Of expressing to Him our absolute dependence on His saving power. What is the help that God uh, will bring David through? What is the help that will bring David through this process, through this situation? What does he say next? Verse 3 through 5, he continues to address God and he switches to remembering who God is. Verse 3, yet you are holy and throned on the praises of Israel in your fathers, in our fathers you trusted. They trusted and, are, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. So here David remembers and recalls the very character of God. This is Yahweh. This is the one who has guided Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's the Savior of all Israel, rescuing His people from Egypt. Time and time again, this God has delivered His people. And so David comforts himself by recalling who God is. He is the great, unchangeable, ever-faithful Yahweh, who has made covenant promises to Israel as His people, and not just to Israel as a whole, more importantly, to David specifically, personally. For David, the comfort that he takes is remembering that the very character of God is unimpeachable. He always saves his people. Let me ask you this question. Why is it that we are slow to cry out to God in our distress and lament to him? I mean, here's David, the king of Israel, He's a mighty man, and yet 
He is crying out. I think he's showing us how to do it. But why are we slow to cry out to God? What are the things in your life that you say, you would think about and you feel like, I am not getting help that I need. I feel forsaken. Maybe it's a marriage that's, going, that's really difficult. Maybe it's a situation with one of your children that feels utterly hopeless. Maybe it's a medical situation where only you and your doctor and your family know and you won't let anybody else know what's happening. Friends, that's turmoil. That's a trial and a struggle. And Psalm 22 shows us we are to go to Him and cry out to Him. So why do we do that? Maybe it's because that we feel like we're being bad Christians, right? If we say anything that suggests that we're not happy with the way things are going, no, that's bad. Maybe the, the, your background, your, where you've come from as a Christian, how you were raised, it's like the church is where everybody comes and everybody's happy all the time and you make sure that nobody knows things aren't okay, right? My friends, that's unbiblical. All over Scripture that God's people are going through very difficult situations and they come to God with them and we reveal them to one another. Maybe you're tempted to fall into the sin of despair. In other words, you think that it is really bad, it is bleak, maybe God's not going to help. You never say that, but the way that you talk about this bad, hard thing in your life there's no hope. Nothing's going to change. God's not going to come and intervene into the state. You know, it's one thing to feel the desperation like David, which is good. I mean, it's fine. Cry out to the Lord in desperation. It's another thing to suggest that God is not good, not holy. He's not going to keep his promises. Friends, that's despair, and that's sin. When I was in college, or when I was in seminary, actually, I went through a season where I was watching a lot of the politics. Uh, it was, felt like things were just crumbling around us. It's even worse now, though. <laughs> but I felt like it was really bad in 2012, and there was a season where I was just like, I went to my professor or mentor, and I was like, you don't understand what happened. This happened. This happened. Things are going to get bad for Christians. We're going to get persecuted. And like, oh, my gosh. Uh. And my professor just listened to my idiot, uh, you know, conversation to him. And he's just like, you know, well, it sounds a lot like you don't think God is in control. You kind of sound like you're in despair, and that's sin. And that was one of the most helpful things, that little rebuke to remind me, like, the way what I'm feeling and what I'm saying matters, and that it was responding with a, a, a sinful despair. You might be asking, what's the difference between a despair or desperation, which is okay, that we're complaining to God, we're crying out to Him, and what is uh, not okay? Look, there's a difference between crying out to the Lord, pouring out our complaints, saying, this is not right, and grumbling, which, like me, I was just having this despair moment, pity party, God's not going to work. One is honest, crying out to the Lord, the other is prideful, God's not, not going to work. Well, maybe this is unfamiliar territory for you. you. You've just never practiced bringing lament before the Lord or to other people. Okay, there's, you've just truncated your life. I've, like, I deal with this on my own, and I come to the Lord in these ways, and He doesn't want to hear about this. And so you've just never bridged the gap. And to be a whole Christian 
talked about those laments, those difficult things, those trials, those struggles. Well, brothers and sisters in Christ, I want to tell you, we can cry to the Lord like David did, and he will truly help us. Say the hard things. Pour out the words of your heart like David did, and then go to Scripture and remind yourself of who God is. That's why he gave us the word, to remind us that he is the one who will keep his promises. Well, David is not done in this first scene. After declaring that he remembers God's character, he returns in verses 6 to 8 to a section of complaint and lament, describing a new twist to his turmoil. Okay, first of all, it was, it was David talking to God, God, why have you forsaken me? But now there's another party. There are enemies who are mocking and scorning David. Verse 6 says, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. David describes himself. He's an insignificant worm. He's been dehumanized by these enemies around him who are mocking him. They heighten his suffering. And David is reduced to being mocked by those around him. Instead of being helped by the fellow people around him, he's being derided, scorned. Can there be a more painful mocking than when someone makes fun of your faith? Has that ever happened to you? They know that you're a Christian. They know you read your Bible. They know that you trust in something else, and they say, that's ridiculous. You're a fool. That's one of the most difficult things to go through, especially in the midst of what David's going through, too, where he has not heard from God. Things are desperate for David. But in verses 9 through 10, he recalls God's care for him from birth. He says in verse 9, Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth. And from my mother's womb you have been my God. Psalmist is saying that Though he is mocked for trusting in Yahweh, it is in fact Yahweh who has made him trust in God. From the very beginning, God has cared for David, watching over him, sustaining him. He is not a worm. He is a man. And to believe the mockers and the scorners is to believe a lie. God is the one who will ignore his lowly, God is not a one who will ignore his lowly oppressed son not when he has carefully, uh, faithfully cared for him since birth. And this is the end of scene one, the turmoil. In scene two, the torment, we see that there's much more that's going on with these enemies that encircle him. In verse 11, there's this petition. He says, be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. What is the help that he needs? Well, he tells us. The enemies are surrounding him and they're aiming for his execution. Verse 12 says, Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me, and they open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. David's enemies are represented by stampeding bulls and roaring lions that are ready to devour him. So they said that he's not a man, that he's a worm, and now these human enemies turn into animals. That can't be reasoned with. He's being hunted 
Verse 16 says, Dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. Dogs are not nice pets in the ancient Near East. They're pack animals. They're scavengers. And so the dogs are encircling David, waiting for David to get tired, to uh, just finally die so they can go in and just eat his body. I know what you're thinking. David is a mighty man. He's a mighty man of old, one who is strong in the Lord and great in faith. Surely he can't be taken out. I mean, he's like the Navy SEAL of Old Testament warriors, right? He'll find some deep reservoir of courage, strength within himself to fight back against his foes. Maybe this is the mantra of our era, too. Like, you know, when the going gets tough, the tough gets going. If the world punches, you punch back. I always see those statements, like, about cancer, where it's like, if cancer comes, I'm going to beat cancer. You know, they say all kinds of weird things where it's like a fight. In fact, this is immortalized in William Ernest Henley's poem, Invictus. Maybe you've heard this. I'm going to give you the last stanza of this poem. It says, It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. And this poem is everywhere, inspiring countless celebrities, politicians. This is a mantra for us in our age, in our world. Henley's argument is that he is unconquerable master of his own fate and soul. I'm sure you know people like that. In fact, I think this is best pictured in a movie with Liam Neeson, and uh, I can't remember the movie, but he basically crash lands in Alaska, and he's trying to survive through this whole uh, you know, ordeal. He's being chased by wolves. In the very last scene of the movie, I'm going to give it away if you haven't seen it, all right? The very last scene of the movie, he's wandered into the pack of wolves, and he takes little bottles, and he wraps glass, the glass bottles uh, you know, with electrical tape like he's ready to punch his way out from a pack of wolves. Go Liam Neeson. And, and this is the end of the movie. The wolves come, and obviously he's not going to make it. But he's going down fighting, all right? He's not going to let the world dictate to him how he's going to act. He's going to go down punching. Friends, this is, that's not David. You've already seen how desperate he is for God to save him. Look at verse 14. He says, I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax that is melted within my breasts. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. Poured out like water. Bones out of joint, a heart of wax. Courage for David is running on empty. There is no strength left to even shake his fist at his enemies. No moisture in his mouth even to shout at them. And he notice in part, verse 15, he says, You, God, you lay me in the dust of death. David is addressing Yahweh. He's addressing God. If the end has come to this, dying at the hands of his enemies, well, it's God who has allowed it. He is the sovereign one, the master of all things. The ultimate reason that David could be put in this situation is that God has purposes for him in his suffering. There are no accidents. There's no coincidences. There's no Satan, no devil who sneaks in to afflict David through his enemies unless God allows it. David is not master of his fate. He is not captain of his soul. And he doesn't write this psalm 
for you and I, like, just go down swinging, toughen up. Not going to lie, that has a certain appeal, right? You just want to swing out at the world when things get tough. The point I want to make is that it, toughness, resilience, pluck, fight, endurance, all those positive things, yeah, that's great. David was all those things. But at some point in your life, in my life, we're going to hit rock bottom. At some point, we're all going to say, God, you lay me in the dust of death. David knows there's no outrunning God's purposes in his suffering. And certainly, you will not outlast his purposes. You know the old adage, God won't give you more than, he can ha- more than you can handle. Well, he actually does that all the time. He's doing that to David right now. David is not handling. He has nothing left. Only God can help him now. So what does he say? Psalm 19, Psalm 22, verse 19. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. Again, David cries out to God to be near, to not be far away from him. God may be the only one, maybe the one who lay him in the dust of death, but he's also the only one who will raise him out again. And he cries out to him to save him from the death, from the sword. And in verse 21, it signals a shift in the entire psalm. He says, you have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. And up until this point, Things are just getting worse for David, yet David is still crying out to God. And then he asks David, he asks God for a saving, uh, to save him. He petitions him. And now in verse 21, there's this past tense statement. You have rescued me. So scene two of our psalm ends with a one-line answer to David's prayer. Salvation. 20 verses of turmoil torment, and then turning to God in one single verse that sums up God's total salvation. You know, David really could have written this psalm in this way. He just said, listen, I was almost dead, right? One verse, and then 20 verses of all the ways that God saved him. And yet, I don't think we would have gotten a full picture of what David was saved from. These 20 verses take us on a journey with David through his suffering, his pain, and through God's silence. And then finally, in verse 21, God's answer. Friends, I think this is a picture of how the Lord wants us to come to Him in lament as well. When we get into difficult, desperate situations where we need God to act, what do we do? What do you do when you have a difficult situation and you need to pray to God and you're talking to Him? What do you say? God, I need help. And then you proceed to, if you're like me, here's all the ways that you need to help me. Right, here's the prescription. You can do, fix this with marriage, job, health, whatever. Right? We go to God with like, this is what you need to do to solve the situation. And yet the biblical pattern for lament is turn to God, complain to Him, pour out your heart, petition or ask God for help, and then trust that He will save. Notice how much of Psalm 22 is a petition. It's really four verses. If you count verse 11, 19 through 21, it's four verses where he says, God, save me, rescue me, deliver me. The rest is turning to God. The rest is complaining to God in the right sense, 
calling out, God, this is not right. Help me. And expressing a trust in the Lord. I think this psalm is giving us insight on how we should lament to the Lord. We're getting a picture of what the Lord wants from us. An authentic turning to God, authentically telling Him what's wrong, seeking Him, and then remembering who He is in Scripture. Do you even know what's bothering you? Do you know what it is in your own heart and soul that's causing so much turmoil? You know, we live in such a busy world these days, so easy to distract yourselves with just a little more entertainment. Hop on your phone. And if you want to see what's deep inside, you have to quiet yourself before the Lord and then pour it out to Him. So scene one was the turmoil. Scene two, we saw the torment of David's enemies. Finally, scene three, our last scene, last part of Psalm 22, it's about triumph, the triumph. Immediately after God's saving of David in verse 21, there is no more talk of dying, no more enemies ready to take out David. All of a sudden they've gone because God has saved. Who knows what happened to them? Instead, we have this section of 10 verses dedicated to the praise that befits a God who saves. Psalm 22, or verse 22, I will tell you, tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. David is alive with praise to the God who has saved him. And he declares to God, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. And so to his fellow believers in Yahweh, instructs them to give praise. Why? Why does he do that? Because, it says in verse 24, God has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. David was not forgotten by God. God didn't ultimately hide his face from David and instead heard him when he cried to him. And so back in verse 1, when David asked God, why has uh, God forsaken him? Here, his testimony is that God hasn't forsaken him. In verse 1, it certainly felt like that God was abandoning and was not listening to David. And so it was right for David to cry out to God in his distress. And along the way, we've seen David appeal to God and come to, for God to come help him in the midst of trial. And so God saves, proving yet again to you and I that da- that to, and to David of God's steadfast love and abiding word to keep his promises. David continues to praise God. Verse 25, From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. Notice that up until scene three, the people taking place in this psalm, those who are part of it, is God himself. You have the evildoers afflicting David. David himself, right? David, God, evildoers. But now after his salvation, David has come among his brothers in the congregation. And that those who fear the Lord, the offspring of Jacob, should stand in awe of God. This points to one of the purposes of David's lament and suffering in the psalm. God is working a great salvation that will be put on display 
for those who are in Israel. The fellow believers, the fellow lovers of God will see and give glory. So God is providing for all the afflicted, satisfying them with food. They, sh- they too shall eat and be satisfied. Notice that we go from David alone to now he's in the communion and now he's telling them, celebrate what God has done. I think, again, that's a picture of what we are to do. The difficulties, the trials, the struggles, the afflictions that you go through are never yours alone to go through. You benefit your brother and sister in Christ when you share with them that suffering and you also share with them how God answers that prayer, how God will come and show up and meet that need. If you've come to our prayer services uh, every second Sunday at 5 p.m., you may have heard some of these prayers get prayed. We've prayed some very huge things, asking God for much help in difficult situations for people, and God has answered those prayers. It's a wonderful thing. And in verse 26, it says, the afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. I think this is pointing to the votive feast that's prescribed in the Old Testament, whereas when somebody is praying to God, when somebody's asking the Lord for something, and they decide, and God acts, and they decide they want to celebrate, they hold a feast. They throw a party. And people come and eat and celebrate what God has done. Wouldn't that be cool if we did that here, right? Some difficult thing you're praying for. Your marriage comes back together. You repent of sin. Your child comes to faith who's been wayward. Whatever it is. And we together all celebrate with you over mounds of biryani or whatever it is that you want to eat. But, and celebrate what God has done. I think it's a fitting way to celebrate and to respond to how God works. And notice, too, the salvation that God brings isn't just for David himself. God intended for the nations to see him work. Psalm 27, or verse 27 says, All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. You know, it's texts like these and numerous others in the Old Testament that show us that God was not merely the God of Israel alone, but of the nations. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to Yahweh, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. This is reminiscent of Genesis 11 and 12. Genesis 11, right, the, the people gather at, uh, in Babel and they're scattered to be many nations, but soon there's going to be a time that will come where they're going to be drawn together like a magnet to worship Yahweh, fulfilling the promise of the next chapter of Genesis, Genesis chapter 12, in which God promises Abram that in him all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Why? How is that possible? It's from Abram that the people of Israel come, and that's where uh, you have Jesus, the Messiah, who's going to come from uh, the family of Abram. 1 Samuel 2.10 reads, The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his kings and exalt the horn of his anointed. That's David. And in his lineage comes Jesus. Friends, there's no doubt that this psalm is a messianic psalm. It is a lament psalm. It is truly a lament where an innocent sufferer is lamenting, crying out to the Lord. But it's also pointing to Christ. Jesus uttered the opening words of Psalm 22 in Mark 15. 29, Matthew 27, which we heard, right? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
Friends, it was Jesus who was truly forsaken for us. He was the one who was scorned, despised, mocked. It was said of him in Luke 23, the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, he saved others. Let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. Jesus was surrounded by evildoers who gloated over him. They took his clothes, his garments, and he died on the cross, thirsty, with no physical strength left in him, dying there for you and I. And truly, Jesus was forsaken in a way that you and I will never know. He was forsaken for our sake, left to die on the cross to bear our penalty and our guilt. He was not forsaken in the sense that the Trinity was somehow broken or that God somehow was, the Godhead was split, yet hanging on, uh, hanging nailed to a cross on Golgotha, Jesus took on the wrath of God to pay the penalty for our sins. It was terrible. It was horrifying. Hebrews 2, 10 through 12 read, For it was fitting that he, for whom, by whom, and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. That's you and I. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. That's a quote from Psalm 22, verse 22. Jesus has brought many sons to glory. We are made children of God by his sacrifice. This, of course, is the church, God's Christ's body and bride that he purchased through the death of the cross. And the church is made of both Israelites, the brothers in verse 22, both rich and poor, those who are far off and those who are near. And they're made up of every nation. You can look at our own congregation as a picture of the church, Christ's body, brothers. The gospel accounts from both Mark and Matthew of Jesus, uh, Mark and the Matthew of Jesus' death on the cross follow this pattern on Psalm 22. Both record his crying out to God, why have you forsaken me? They record his thirst and drinking of sour wine. And when Jesus dies on the cross, they both record the pagan centurion standing there in awe, confessing, truly, this is the Son of God. And I believe this is pointing to the all nations that we see in Psalm 27, uh, uh, 22-27, remembering and turning to the Lord, worshiping Yahweh. It's a picture of this centurion worshiping God as the start of the nations uh, to see Christ and to believe in Him. So let me ask you, what is the point of all this suffering? What is the point of suffering for you and I as Christians? Is it all meaningless? Is it random? Is it just a tough world out there and life is hard? Right? And there's God who's good and He's saved you. And there's Satan in the world and He's bad. Don't, don't do anything with Him, right? But sometimes life is just tough. There's this like middle category of just like, Sometimes you just get kicked by the world, and God's over there going like, oh, man, I hope, hope that didn't hurt too bad. I don't think so. Our God is sovereign. He rules and reigns. He is the captain of our souls. He is the master of our faith. He, won, he is the one who owns our destiny. So no, we're not too meant to try to harden ourselves, to punch back at the world, to somehow make it ourselves impervious 
to suffering, it's impossible. Especially when it's God Himself that orchestrates that suffering. Psalm 22 makes it clear that David saw his situation of suffering as entirely within the realm of God's sovereign control. David felt like he was forsaken, but Jesus was forsaken. You may feel like you're abandoned, forsaken, forgotten by God, but you never will be because, again, Jesus was forsaken on our behalf. And this is why David, the tough military man raised in the wilderness, can fall apart before God and lament. David is crying out to the Lord for help because he knows that it's only God who can save him. God ordains suffering. And why is that? God ordains suffering, trials, tribulation, torment, turmoil, so that we would glorify him. Verse 22, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. And so we say in the midst of our suffering, in the difficulties that you go through, one of the reasons why God puts you through those things is so that you would say, you cry out to him and lament, you would ask God for his help, you would turn to him, you would remember who he is, and then when God saves, you would say, blessed be the name of the Lord. And that's an encouragement to your brothers and sisters in Christ. The end of all suffering is a God who has suffered most, and through him he comforts us who are afflicted. Jesus knows what we've gone through, because what he went through was infinity times worse. And through him, we can be comforted. So suffering for the Christian now is, not, is now part of right worship and allegiance to Jesus. All through the New Testament, you see suffering as a means of shaping believers. Right? Philippians 1.29, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Following Jesus as the one who suffered most and was forsaken for us means that we must likewise suffer. And our suffering is not like Jesus's. We don't suffer to be made clean and therefore righteous. No. Christ purchased our righteousness. Jesus did that. Our suffering is part of God's sanctifying work. Having been saved, our suffering now helps us look to God alone for our hope, for our salvation. God has ordained the means of suffering to shape us more into the likeness of His Son. And through it, we will also give praise to God as the one who saves, who hears the voice of the afflicted. If you're here and you're not a believer, I'm just wondering, does this sound good to you at all? I, how do you go through life? How do you go through the suffering in this world and have hope? I pray that you have heard today that Christians hope in a God they hope in something other than themselves. And that Jesus is the one who can deliver you from your trials and tribulations. If you want to know more about that, talk to any one of his members, pastors, elders. We'd love to tell you what it means to follow Jesus and how to have that hope and be restored in Christ. Well, Psalm 22 ends with these final three verses. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship before him shall bow down all who could go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. 
It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim His righteousness to a people yet unborn, that He has done it. Verse 30 gives yet another reason for suffering. Posterity shall serve Him. You know, the word posterity literally means seed, generations, offspring. These offspring will come and they will proclaim His righteousness to yet another generation that's unborn. The psalm began with a cry of pain of seeking God who seems silent and it ends with this vision of anticipating the preaching of the cross, recounting God's deliverance of His people through Jesus with this announcement in verse 31, He has done it. This sounds a lot like the Lord's cry on the cross before His death. It is finished. Friends, in your trials, turmoils, tribulations, in your daily suffering, know that God has heard your prayers. He is not far off. He has not forgotten you. He will never leave you or forsake you. Look at the cross as evidence of that promise. Before time began, Christ entered the world and He would be forsaken, cursed, and suffer fully for our sake, the just for the unjust. Know that God means to sanctify you through these difficult times to form you more into the likeness of His Son, and though it is dark in the moment, the dawn is surely coming. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray now that you would take your word and plant it deep in our hearts and you would spring forth knowledge and understanding that you would give us your people who follow you and go through difficulties and suffering and affliction and trials and tribulation that you ordain. Give us the means to endure. Show us that none of this is wasted, that you mean to sanctify your people through it, and that as you save your people, we will glorify you more. Thank you, Lord, for your kindness to us in Christ. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.